So we want to uh, conclude looking at the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 6. If you have your phone, uh, go to that, U version. It's quite a common one that a lot of people use. And please uh, go to that as well. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we've been encouraging and asking each one of you to write down your prayer for this church body for the next year. And if you haven't done so, uh, we would encourage you to do that. Write down your prayer, and there's probably cards in your seats there. I know that Amanda has stuck them randomly through and pins. And don't put your name on it, but write down your prayer, young and old, okay? So it doesn't matter how young you are, and there's a basket out there uh, on the middle table in the foyer, and just put them in that basket. This Sunday is going to be our last Sunday. We have a number of them, and we want to make a prayer booklet that we will start praying through as a body. Each one of you as a family will get one of those prayer booklets, and, uh, and then we'll pray through them uh, corporately as well. And so uh, with that, um, Todd is going to do some changing. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to start doing is if you have a prayer request, if you have a need, if you want something that's lifted up in prayer, I would encourage you to write it down, and we're going to start this next Sunday. Write it down on a piece of paper. We'll make sure that there's paper in front uh, and your chairs. Write down that prayer request and put it in a basket so that we can start incorporating that. Okay? And some of the orders of service you're going to see is we're going to spend some time in prayer. And we're going to pray through that booklet, but we're also going to pray through your different needs. Okay? So instead of the old-fashioned way where you'd get up and you would share, and, uh, and, and that would take some time, we want you to write it down. It's important, and we want to lift that up. And then we want to also do, uh, as elders, we want to carry that forward and pray on that. So again, uh, think about that, put it down, because I'm sure there are needs and I'm sure there are things going on in your life that you could use prayer for. And that's what this body is about. We are to lift each other up in prayer and encourage each other in prayer. This morning we're going to wrap up on the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to take a look at uh, verse 13 of this chapter 6 of Matthew. And today I want us to talk about, and I want us to take a look at two enemies we often overlook. And these two enemies threaten our security far more than a boss who is unfair or a former friend who betrays our trust. In extreme cases, perhaps someone who's violated us with violence or who steals something precious from us. Because these enemies, we often don't think about. We don't think about them. These two enemies move undetected, secretly working their power of destruction. We've been in this sermon series through the Lord's Prayer. His disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. John the Baptist's disciples had a prayer time. Teach us through that. 
In the first week we saw in the Lord's Prayer, we learned that prayer begins with adoration. Jesus told us to pray, Our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. He was inviting us to a relationship of adoration. He was inviting us to approach God as sons and daughters in the doxology part of it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then we move from adoration to affirmation as we learned to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Here we learned to affirm God's kingdom will be in prayers as we learn to express our trust in God's will. And last Sunday, Jarrell did a tremendous job of delivering the word of waiting. And sometimes we don't like to wait. And sometimes we say, don't worry God, I got this one. And how powerful it is to pray God's will. I'm even learning this continually from my mentors, one of them being my dad. He always writes and concludes his letters and his emails, Lord willing. I'll see you, Lord willing. We'll get together, Lord willing. Because the Lord has our lives in his hands. The Lord knows where we're at. Psalms 139 talks about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. His days are laid out before him, even before we were born. And it's powerful. Because even in everything that we do, Lord, your will be done. We affirm our commitment to God's kingdom above all other governments. Our commitment to God's will above our own will. A couple Sundays ago then, we took a look at forgiveness in God's, in the prayer there. And that we are expected to extend forgiveness to those around us who hurt us. And we talked about, we saw from Scripture what forgiveness is and what it's not. And about the connection between our experience of God's forgiveness and our willingness to forgive others around us. And this morning now, we come to this phrase. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We find two enemies that threaten our security and how in prayer we can respond to these two enemies. This is what Jesus is teaching And the first is our security against our first enemy. And our first enemy is the enemy that exists within each one of our hearts. It's like that old saying that goes like this. We have met the enemy and he's in us. Scripture tells us that our heart is wicked. Who can know it but the Lord? It's like that old saying, and you've seen it on bumper stickers floating around. We have them, uh, pardon me, uh, we find 
the enemy implied in this phrase, lead us not in temptation, the bumper sticker that I was thinking about and I lost it in my notes and found it now. Lead us not in temptation, I can find it for myself. Have you seen that sticker? That little phrase? There's real truth into that. Because all of us have an inner moving to seek out temptation in our lives. And Jesus knew this. And by using this phrase, Jesus is not suggesting that God is the author of our temptations. That's not what he's saying. What this phrase means is that we are asking for protection against temptation. We're asking God, Lord, please protect me from the temptations I encounter in my life so I don't blow it. And whenever we pray this prayer, we're admitting that there is something inside our hearts that does not want to please God. And we all wrestle with it. We're admitting that there is a part in each one of us, in our hearts, that doesn't want to be faithful to our spouse. That wants to take things that do not belong to us. That wants to hurt people. And when we pray this prayer, we're admitting that we cannot handle that part of ourselves on our own. And so the first enemy we're encountering is ourself. And here is what we find about how our prayer helps in this area. In prayer, we find strength to resist our urge to disobey God. People in general, I know I wrestle with it, I believe you do too, have a tendency to think they can handle the urge to disobey God by themselves. Don't worry, I got this one, God. We figure our heart is different. That the seeds of evil and violence cannot be present in our hearts. After all, we're just good, decent, church-going people. And sure, we face a temptation here or there, but we can handle those things on our own. And when we do that, we grossly underestimate this first enemy. We become like one of Jesus' friends. His name is Peter, who underestimated his own power to withstand temptation. And Peter made this statement. Even if everyone else abandons you, Jesus, I will never do that. You can count on me. I'm with you even if it means suffering and death. See, Peter assumed that he would never be tempted to abandon Jesus. Or if he were tempted in that way, that he would be able to withstand the temptation effortlessly. There would be no problem, Lord. You can count on me. And Peter is a lot like us. We grossly underestimate the power of this first enemy. And Jesus warned Peter. He said this, You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
And that's exactly what happened. Have you ever said this statement? I would never be tempted to do blank. I have, I have made those statements. I've said those words. And inevitably, I find myself struggling with the very sin I thought I was immune to. I'm trying to learn to avoid Peter's kind of attitude, even though it sounds good and spiritual to claim to be above all temptation. These days, I'm not sure what I'm capable of because my worst enemy is my own heart. Scripture makes it very clear. My heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? You see, we lack the strength to face temptation alone. We're kind of like an electrical appliance without a power source. Some of you are in construction. Can you imagine trying to cut a two-by-four with a circular saw that's not plugged in? Manually, it would be just about impossible. You see, we need to plug into the power of God for us to have the strength to resist temptation that we encounter. And things have stepped it up. It used to be magazines. It used to be different things that we could read. Guess what? Many of us carry it in our pockets now, and everything comes to us on that pocket, in that phone. And nobody else sees it except us and Jesus We get bombarded with piles and piles of information. And it's not all wholesome. And we think, oh, it's not going to bother us. Some of my friends has gotten to the point that they've even got rid of their phones. Listen to the words, if you will, and have your Bibles. I would encourage you to turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And I want to take a look at verses 16 and 17 to start us off here. Paul is writing to the church of Galatia. He says this. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. That was a battle that Paul even said it. He struggled with it. Bounce down to verses 22 to 23 because Paul lists in those verses when we live by the Spirit that's contrary to God's Spirit and then he bumps into verse 22 and he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit 
is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Powerful when we think about it. Paul says this, that there is a war going on within each one of us, which is each one of our hearts. It's a war between God's spirit and what he's prompting us to do to obey God and what our sinful nature or our flesh wants to do in disobedience. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said something that you did not want to say to your partner and you said it and you go, man, knew I wasn't going to say that and I did it anyways. We all wrestle with it. We know we need to do something and we don't do it. The Spirit prompts us not to do that, but it looks so good. Who's going to notice if I take that piece of candy? Who's going to notice? The Jewish people back in the New Testament times believed that every human heart had an evil impulse. And in that, it prompts us to rebel against God and his ways. And this is what Paul refers to as a sinful nature or as the flesh. It's that inclination to want to do things our own way, regardless of how it hurts people. That tendency to resist the ways of God. And guess what? There is no truce or ceasefire possible in this inner battle. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop even when you get to be in your 80s and 90s. I had one gentleman in one of the churches. He was 98 years old. He still said he wrestles with this. No matter what we decide, a part of us will regret our decision. When we give in to our inclination to disobey God, the Spirit of God within us resists the decision causing regret. Ever got that? Either way, there, there is the kind of regret, though of course the regret of sin carries with it far more destructive consequences than the regret of disobedience. And however, as we're promised, the Holy Spirit gives us a number of fruit or results of God's Spirit that last result of God's Spirit. And Paul lists that. Self-control. The Greek word refers to it as mastery over one's desires. It's the same word that is used in a verb to describe the training of Olympic athlete that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Self-control does not refer to eliminating the elimination of our desires and passions, but an ability to restrain them within the bounds of God's principles. Notice in the Lord's Prayer. The strength to resist temptation is not totally activated 
or totally passive. Paul is not saying, and he's not telling us just to try harder or to bear down or to grit our teeth or to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The whole point of this prayer is that we can't face temptation alone. That we need God's strength because our strength is insufficient to resist. He also is not saying this, Paul, in Galatians, just let go and let God. He's not saying that. We say that. He calls us to a life where we receive strength from the Holy Spirit. That we do not have our own, but where we make the choice to use the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he gives us strength to resist the inclination to sin. And when we do this, this battle is a winnable battle. Because the self-control we use is the gift of God's Spirit. And it's simply not a human resource we draw on our own strength. It's not looking in within ourselves and drawing out that inner strength. It's asking the Holy Spirit to move and to give us the strength and the power. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, says this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up from underneath it. Paul pictures temptation as grabbing us, seizing us, like a pit bull grabbing hold of your arm. And sometimes that's what it feels like, doesn't it? We're going through life doing what we need to do and suddenly there's an urge to disobey God And it kind of seems to broadside us. Throw us down that road of disobedience. And Paul assures us that all human beings share this kind of experience. It's not just you. Every single one of us goes through this. Experiences it daily. Even people who appear to be immune to these kinds of immoral urges around them. Bartenders, pastors, car salespeople, teachers, homemakers, soldiers, doctors, nurses, everyone has experienced being seized by the temptation to disobey God. Even Jesus himself, the perfect son of God, experienced temptation. And he stands with 
with us as one who's been tempted in all things like we. That's such a great thing about our God. It's such a great thing to know that we have a God that identifies with us. Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God, but he identifies with us. He's been tempted like we have. And yet Jesus stood fast. He resisted the temptation. And he stands beside us in our time of temptation as well. Although God is not the author of our temptation, God does limit our temptations. There's a lot of theological significance in that statement. So let me say it again. Although God is not the author of our temptations, he does limit our temptations. He makes sure there's a way of escape, an exit that we can take at any time. This verse out of 1 Corinthians is where people get the idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Although temptation seems to seize us, God will make sure that it totally cannot overwhelm us. He will ensure us that there's always an emergency exit. Finding this way of escape comes as a result of prayer. If we think we can handle our urges and our temptations on our own, we will fail to see the way of escape when temptation hits us. And it comes in all sorts of forms. However, when we cry out to God in the midst of this, God will show us a way to escape. So the first enemy of our security is our own self. That part of our hearts that resist and rebel against God. This is what Jesus was saying with this Lord's Prayer. Here's the second enemy. And we find this in the latter part of that verse 13. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Now some Bible translations will render this in the original Greek. Deliver us from evil. However, the Greek word evil refers to a person, not merely to a force. And so it has more accurately been translated the evil one. You see, the Bible consistently teaches that there is such a thing as Satan or the devil. Our world doesn't want to believe it. Even some of our evangelical churches are going this way. From the serpent in the garden, in the first book of the Bible, to the devil who's thrown in the lake of fire in the last book of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible present us with a unified testimony that there is a powerful personal force of evil in the world who hates God and is enemy of every human being. 
And it has become unpopular to believe in a real devil. It's growing more and more. And therefore we find in this last part of our prayer for security is security against the second kind of this enemy. Prayer becomes for us a place where we experience deliverance and victory over the powers of evil. And these powers of evil, they're not just abstract concepts. But they go back to a real devil who has a work with numerous fallen angels in our world. So the devil is not all-knowing. God's all-knowing. The devil is not all-present. God's all-present. But the devil has a legion of angels that are working for him. And they are cruising all over. And the devil and his angels are experts at exploiting human behavior to further the agenda of evil in our world. And therefore Jesus says, and deliver us from the evil one. Now how does prayer help us against the second enemy? First, prayer helps us by exposing spiritual attack. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 11 says this. Paul writes, so let's bump up to verse 10. It gives you a little bit of context where he's writing. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is any, was anything to forgive, I, was, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan would like nothing better to destroy what God sees as good. So God sees marriage as good. Satan works overtime. God sees families as good. Satan works overtime. God sees his bodies of Christ as good. Satan works overtime. Now, we cannot be possessed if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But we can give Satan foothold, opportunities for his legion to cause problems. Things we haven't dealt with. Things we haven't forgiven. Different things we said, oh, don't worry, I got that, God. And we all walk into a building like this, carrying our own garbage bags. We all have our own garbage. And the heap gets pretty big. Because we're sinful people. Saved by his grace. 
And we want more people to come and experience that grace and carry their garbage. But guess what? It gives foothold for Satan to move. And the context of this statement is Paul's explanation of his decision to forgive a member of the Corinthian church who had sinned against him. Paul knows that if he refuses to forgive this person, Satan will exploit that situation. He, Paul knows that he, if he doesn't forgive that man, that person, that his heart will be filled with bitterness. And therefore, Paul makes the choice to forgive the person, even though it's hard because he knows Satan would like nothing more than to exploit unforgiveness for his own evil purposes. That's why the Lord talked about, Lord, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Paul claims to know what Satan's plans are in this situation. And I suspect he knows this because of his prayer life. You see, when we're before God in prayer, seeking deliverance from the powers of evil in this world, in our world, God helps us see the situation in our lives from his perspective. God helps us to discern spiritual attack where we couldn't see it before. And suddenly we realize that the conflict that we're having at work or with other people is an attempt of the evil one to hurt our credibility as a Christian worker. You see, the world has a poster of what a Christian should look like. They already have that. And we miss short, we fall short to that poster. Or we realize the struggles we're having at church is an attempt of the evil one to hinder the church from fulfilling its mission. You see, prayer exposes spiritual attack so we can recognize it for what it truly is. The second part of this prayer also gives us the power to resist evil. Turn with me, if you will, to James. James chapter 4. Verse 7 says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As human beings, we are no match for the powers of evil in our world. We're no match. That's why we're told to give ourselves completely to God, to submit our entire lives to God, and, and then only can, then can we take a stand against the devil. You see, if we try to battle the works of darkness on our own resources, we will find ourselves consistently losing.
Satan's kind of like a car thief. He goes from one car to another car, looking for a car to break into. And he finds a car unlocked. He moves in. When Satan finds a person who has submitted to God and empowered by God to resist him, he's likely to move on to another person because there's plenty of people who have not and are not submitted to God. You see how this Lord's Prayer all is starting to put together? First, we're praying for God's will to be done. And then we pray that he'll forgive us as we forgive our debtors. And then he concludes by leading us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is the way we give ourselves completely to God. It is in prayer that we lay our lives down before the Father, that we offer ourselves up to God as a living sacrifice. It is in prayer that we express our surrender to the Father. And finally, prayer gives us victory by equipping us with resources to combat evil. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6. We're told to put on the full armor of God. Why? Because our own flesh and blood resources are no match against the powers and the evil of darkness. God gives us that resource. He provides us with resources to combat evil. And these resources in Ephesians chapter 6 are described as the full armor of God. we're constantly losing to temptation if we're constantly seeing things go on that shouldn't be going on we need to stop and say where am I you see we're constantly tempted to combat evil with evil to meet violence with violence hatred with more hatred betrayal with betrayal that's what the world tells us The key to putting on this armor is so that we have the resources to combat evil, and that is prayer. In prayer, we by faith put on the armor, trusting God, resources to combat evil. Only as we seek God, victory, and prayer are we equipped with the resources to truly combat our evil in the world. When we do that, both these enemies that we wrestle with, our own heart and Satan and his legions, both of them will be neutralized in prayer. This is what Jesus is teaching. Jesus gave us this prayer as a template. He's not saying you follow this. It's a template. Think about what we're praying. 
He didn't expect us to merely repeat it again and again, just like we recite the ABCs, but learn it as a pattern of prayer. So I want to encourage you to fill out that little prayer card. Write down what is your prayer for this church body. Put that in the basket today before you leave so we can get that included into the booklet. I would also encourage you to write down your prayer requests. If you wanted to be unknown, put down unknown. We don't need to know the person. God knows the person. God knows your heart. But let us pray with you. Let us walk with you. I would encourage you to do that. We'll be seeing that basket out there next week, starting that. But I would encourage you, pray requests for health or sickness, temptation, whatever you're going through, let us walk with you. And let me just close in prayer. Lord, just thank you. Thank you for this prayer that you have given us as a template to follow. Lord, we want to just give you the honor and glory and the power and the praise that is due your name. Lord, I just pray that my brothers and sisters and myself, that we may call out on you for help, resist our hearts that are desperately wicked, wanting to do opposite of what we know was not right to do. And Lord, for the evil one that would like nothing more to divide us as families, our marriage, and our church body. Lord, we just pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.